Welcome to the Pitbox Podcast. I'm John Satori. Uh, we're heading to Portugal this weekend. It's not like we haven't been there before, but in those days, it was to the Estoril Circuit this weekend. We're heading to a place where we've never been before, actually, in Portimao. Uh, apart from testing in 2009, it is the Autodromo Internacional do Algarve. So a new circuit's been resurfaced recently. Lots of unknowns. We're going to take a look at a lap there um, and run you through that. Of course, talk about tyres, what we think will probably play out. Uh, also... Talking of technical, chatting with Matt Summerfield. If you read Motorsport or Autosport, you'll know him. He contributes fantastic analysis uh, alongside the legendary Giorgio Piola, chatting with Matt as well. And, of course, James Underhay is going to be joining us and uh, taking, taking us through all the stories that have been making the F1 news rounds in the last seven or so days on the Pitbox Podcast. So this week we head to Portimao for round 12 of the Formula One World Championship. Of course, not the first time we've been to Portugal. We used to go to Estoril back in the days, but that was over 20 years ago. Uh, this weekend we're at the Autodromo International do Algarve, which I think has held a test in 2009. I think the only driver who's driven there in an F1 car is Lewis Hamilton in the days that he was driving McLaren's. I think there was a test, um, it might have been a tyre test, I can't remember, but Ferrari and McLaren were certainly there, but none of the current drivers apart from Lewis Hamilton. But some of the current drivers have driven there in junior formula, Ricardo being one of them, George Russell another. Um, I can't remember, there's a few others have been mentioned. But either way, most of the field don't have much experience um, around this circuit. It looks a bit Magello-ish, if I'm honest. Uh, they're calling it the roller coaster. lots of elevation changes. I think the drivers are really going to enjoy it. Um, particularly certain corners, the, the the exit of turn eight as you head up the hill and you can't see what's coming ahead. And that's where you're then straight away heading back downhill to the left-hander at uh, nine, which is called Craig Jones, named after the uh, former uh, British motorcyclist. But you're unsighted as you exit turn eight up the hill. You just can't see anything. But fast corners mostly, uh, six, seven, nine, 12, 15, uh, they're all pretty rapid. Uh, just one DRS zone, which is along the main straight. I was hoping there might have been a second one. Uh, they might have done one from four to five, but obviously uh, the FIA don't agree for whatever the reasons are. Not long enough or not safe enough. But it, it looks like there's some good overtaking opportunities into turn one. Um, also five, ten, and 13 as well, hopefully. Um, now, we talk about turn one. Interesting that George Russell... He, as I said, has driven around here, and he thought that the alternative uh, turn one layout, if you've seen that, um, would have been better because you'd have to have a bigger braking moment at the end of the main straight. Now, the layout he's talking about is is a, a sharper right-hander, which then immediately sort of leads onto a left-hander. It's almost like a loop. As I say, I think it would have afforded more overtakes because of that that bigger braking moment down into turn one, but we're not. It's going to be a pretty rapid, very much like Magello, if you like. Um, you know, there's a, a touch on the brakes. You're downshifting, I think, once, and then you're into the right-hander. So, uh, but yeah, anyway, I, it would have been better, I think, to have a, a bigger braking moment to encourage overtaking. It would have spiced it up a bit more, I suppose, coming off that DRS zone. But overall, it's going to be a big challenge for all, particularly no data on it. Um, as I was saying, some testing here in 2009, uh, which is going to be pretty irrelevant by now. Um, so, yeah, drivers, engineers, steep learning curve here this weekend. Of course, uh, Pirelli have not uh, supplied tyres to this circuit before. Um, I, you know, I, I talk about Magello. I'll talk about tyres in a second, but just one more quick point on Magello. The, the final two corners, 
uh, here at um, at Portimao, uh, very much like what we had in Mugello. And of course, you remember back to that uh, that Grand Prix, the carnage on the restart after the safety car. And it was in no small part because the start line was quite a distance from the final corner. The difference with this circuit is that the pit lane entry is actually before the final corner, whereas in Mugello, it was on the main straight. And, uh, of course, that makes a a difference as to when the safety car peels off into the pit lane. So I think that will sort of save us from any restart chaos if we happen to get that. But, again, it's just another uh, interesting comparison uh, with Mugello. It's been resurfaced recently. That adds another unknown. The tyres this week from Pirelli, they've gone for the hardest, understandably, as well. C1, 2, and 3 for safety reasons. They've got no data on it. They don't want to be going in there with the softer tyres and putting everybody at risk. Or it may not be at risk, but you just don't know that. Um, the front left looks like it, it's going to be in for quite a tough time, doesn't it? Uh, too fast, right-handers. Then a big braking moment into the right-handed turn three where it looks like the drivers might get a bit of understeer there. Some lockups. Um, expect a, a few to run wide as well at uh, the exit of turn one. Remember, they're going to be taking that at pace. So we may well see Michael Massey saying, um, right, you're going to you know, you run wide all four wheels off the circuit. You're going to get a, a, um, a penalty there. And obviously, track uh, sorry, time is deleted or laps deleted should you do it during qualifying. Um, but, uh, yeah, you get a bit of relief on those tyres in the next few corners. Seven is fast and right. Eight is sharper and right. Decent braking moment there. And, again, um, the biggest braking moment looks to be actually turn 10, uh, which is going to be a good opportunity to overtake. Again, it's a right-hander then through 14. That's off camber. So, again, it's going to be a challenge for drivers and and. Turn 15, the tyres are going to be, particularly the front left is going to be screaming for a breather, uh, which it will get on the straight. But, you know, it's overall looking like a a really interesting lap and one that I think the drivers with the the change of direction at pace, the Gs, they're going to be absolutely loving that. And, of course, the big braking moments as well um, down into turn 10 and and, and also the hairpin at five. Um, As far as uh, the championship is concerned, the constructors, I think, Theoretically, Merck can pretty much wrap it up here this weekend. They're 180 points ahead of Red Bull, um, and that's likely to stay. Um, I think Red Bull would have to win. Not only win, they'd have to get first and second at at least the next four races in Merck not to score any points to sort of keep that title battle alive. So while mathematically after this weekend it's still possible, it's highly unlikely. And of course, um, as far as the Drivers' Championship is concerned, Bottas needs uh, not only a race win here and a, and a Hamilton DNF, so no points, um, to cut that 69-point advantage that Lewis has over him. He needs it on a couple of more occasions as well. And again, probably highly unlikely. But it'd be nice for it to happen, but probably not going to happen. But probably not going to happen, rather. Um the interesting part of the battle in the constructors really is the fight for third, isn't it, at the moment, uh, which is racing point. They've taken over third. Uh, McLaren have only picked up 10 points over the last two races. Uh, they got fifth in uh, the Eiffel Grand Prix at Nürburgring, uh, where um, Carlos Sainz wasn't particularly happy with the feel of the car. He had the new package, the upgraded package, on which they didn't really get to evaluate correctly, did they, because of the Friday running was was wiped out because of the conditions. Um, so they'll really need to to get on, push on on the Friday, expect to see a lot of laps from them so they can start to get the setup right 
on that new aero package they put on the car, and they need it to happen because Renault have closed the gap on them as well. Renault have definitely making a step, have made a step forward, haven't they? I think we heard uh, Andre Seidel saying in the last couple of days that um, he reckons they're about two tenths, maybe faster at the moment. Renault, uh, of course, Ricardo got the podium, didn't he? In um, in at the Nurburgring, so that's put them within two points of. Um, the Woking team, so it's yeah that that uh, midfield battle is probably the the one to really watch and is the most exciting at the moment. Um, a strange few words as we look further down the constructors' table, and that is Ferrari in sixth, and and of course they're being hunted down by AlphaTauri at the moment. AlphaTauri are just thirteen points behind them. Can you imagine? Yeah, and it's and it's possible, very very possible. Of course, stranger words would be Ferrari in seventh. We'll have to wait and see. So talking of Ferrari, let's get James Underhay to take us through the week's goings-on in F1. And uh, Jimbo, the first thing to mention is that there's still some life in this driver's market, isn't there? I think there is, John. I think there's a lot of life in this driver's market at the moment. Things are heating up, um, I think, currently with... Just some more speculation around who's going to be in what seat. Obviously, I mean, that's the, the, the pretty standard goings on. But there's been some interesting names and potential switches uh, thrown up this week, I think. Well, and, and the first one, I suppose, to talk about as we get towards the start at the, the higher end of the grid, if you like, is Red Bull and what Helmut Marco has been throwing about in the paddock. Yeah, for sure. Um, this is quite interesting, actually. Obviously, yeah, we've talked about Alex Albon being under some fairly fairly heavy pressure of late. Um, he's certainly put in some great performances from time to time, but I think he's been lacking that consistency that Red Bull are looking for. Uh, and Marco, in his fairly typical style, his outspoken style, he's been talking about it this week and, and suggested that whilst Alex will keep his seat, if he continues to develop and, uh, and kind of pick up speed in line with the team's expectations, he has also said that Checo Perez and Nico Hulkenberg are actually drivers that could offer the team the experience that they need, the speed, which is which is there with both drivers, uh, and in Checo's case, some big backing as well, as we've talked about recently. So quite interesting to see their names now being linked to Red Bull because that is a, a very serious drive for any driver on the grid. Um, and as we've talked about with Checo and Nico, would they want to drive at the back of the grid? Probably not. This would definitely pique their interest. Yeah, and, and for sure they'd be picking up the phone if they knew it was um, Helmut or Christian Horner who were at the other end. And uh, you can understand, though, as well, and we've mentioned this before, about the fact that this year Red Bull are in the secure position of second without anybody really threatening them because Ferrari have dropped off and no one else has really sort of come up to second and, and, and threatened them. So yeah. they need someone who can score the points because... Next year, that may not be the case, and certainly moving forward when we get to the reset of regulations in 2022, you need to have two drivers scoring points, and you either want Albon on top of his game by that point, uh, certainly by the very latest, the start of 2022, but really, you know, next year. Yeah, absolutely. It's a point that you've made a lot recently. It's a very valid point, John. You've got to have two guys in that car that can regularly score comfortable points every weekend they're out in the car. Um at the moment, Albon obviously is not really that person. Checo and Nico Hulkenberg certainly are. So, um, yeah, it will be very interesting to see how that plays out. And also, the other interesting noises we heard during the week were Williams. Um, now, 
Nicholas Latifi, we know with his dad's backing that he's certainly got a seat for 2021. George Russell, he's a part of the Mercedes setup and Williams take Mercedes engines. But there was a little bit of a hint that, well, that's not necessarily all tied down, even though he's got a contract through until the end of next year. Yeah, um, that news has broken within, I think, today, hasn't it, in terms of George potentially being at risk there, which is hard to believe, really, because he's you know he's doing things in that car that he shouldn't necessarily be able to do. He's massively outperforming Latifi. Um, but yet th- we believe he's now starting to have conversations with some other teams up and down the grid. So um, I would be pretty disappointed for him, unless, of course, that, situation materializes that he ends up in a better car than the Williams which is not necessarily a, a um, you know a hard thing to uh, to imagine at the moment given their performance but you know it, it would be it would seem a little wrong and off given his performance and how he's delivered for them albeit obviously in a very very underperforming car that he could be the one that loses his seat but again uh, money talks doesn't it and uh, Latifi's fat wallet uh, certainly will keep him there for 21 by the sounds of it. Because uh, you can understand why the new owners for Williams, Derillion uh, Capital, are thinking this because it depends on how much Mercedes are taking off the price of their engines to for, uh, to to Williams compared to what sort of money, say, someone like Checo Perez, who's the man who's been sort of vaguely linked um, yeah. as far as the rumours are concerned. And that's because the Haas thing may be going away, and we'll get to that in a second. But it depends on sort of what the um, the balance sheet reads when you bring Checo's you know portfolio of sponsors in to Williams, for example, and how does that balance out against what they get off their engine supply from Mercedes? So I can understand why they're doing it, and it's not like George Russell doesn't have a future in the sport anyway, and it's not like it's really critical for the moment when it comes to scoring points, is it? Uh, well, look, he's not he's not competing for points every weekend, is he? So um, I think that the points are almost irrelevant to Williams at the moment because that the, even if they found some magic formula that got the car competing for points every single weekend, that they're still going to be a million miles behind everyone else come the end of the season, uh, bar Haas maybe. But I, I just think that um, you know the, the point you make around not only Latifi sponsorship but the potential of someone like Checo coming in with the huge sponsorship that he brings with him, that's going to be appealing to any team owner, especially a new team owner who's obviously just spent a fairly large chunk, I would have thought, taking over the team uh, and and kind of refinancing and making sure that the team is is stable for the years to come. Um, You know, the investors would be very, very keen to get someone involved who has a lot of sponsorship and can, can kind of at least steady the ship from that spend point of view. And it gives them a bit more experience in that cockpit as well. Now, we're talking about Perez and Haas because, you know, you and I have been talking about this. The link there is, you know, the Mexican-USA link is quite close. But now that's sort of gone or potentially gone away, hasn't it, because of a a young F2 hotshot? It has. It has. uh, Nikita Mazapan, Um, you know, he's... Uh, a talented guy and his father was spotted in pretty deep conversation with Gunter Steiner recently, um, I think at the Nürburgring. And uh, again, we hate to harp back to it again, but Mazapan brings huge sponsorship as well. So he's, he's young, he's talented, he's looking for a drive. There's conversations clearly ongoing at the moment and he brings money with him. Um, So yeah, I think, um, the, the, the links now for Checo to Williams and also Red Bull mean that, that that potentially is opening up. But the interesting thing is, is that Haas are, have been open about the conversations that they've been having. And they're talking to up to 10 candidates, they think, for race seats in 2021. Um, so there's a lot of people going to be jostling for that seat. 
Yeah, and the thing is that if Mazepin does come in and his father ends up owning the team, you know, it's a Lance Stroll situation, and okay, if they want to do it, they want to do it. Um, but it then means that you you can't really take you can't take another rookie, can you? Surely they they'd have to keep either Magnussen or bring in um, the dollars of Checo Perez as long as the the sponsor portfolio don't you know interfere with each other, Mazepin versus Checo um, or Hulkenberg. You know what I mean? You can't just have two rookies again in your seat, surely. Um, I, d- I think it depends on who owns the team, John. For me, <laughs> for me, I think it depends on who owns the team. If, if Mazepan's uh, dad ends up involved heavily uh, at the team, I, you know, potentially, yes, you will or could see that situation. I think if Gene Haas is still involved, which um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that he would necessarily have that. I, I, I just got a feeling that you know Grosjean's going to be off. There's been chatter around. Um, him getting a, a potential Peugeot World Endurance or World uh, the WEC World Endurance Championship drive in the hypercar series with Peugeot. And he stated he's very, very interested in that. So there's a pretty good chance he's going to go. I think he's been exploring his options for a while now. And the Magnussen thing, well, you know, he, he's, as we've talked about previously, he's probably the most obvious one to keep out of the two. But I think a lot could change there. If they're talking to 10 candidates at the moment, they're not going to be talking to 10 candidates about one seat. They're going to be talking to 10 candidates about what they can bring to the team and potentially giving two people seats at that team. Yeah. And of course, one of those was Mick Schumacher because of his ties to Ferrari. Um, And Mick was supposed to have done uh, the FP2 session at the Eiffel Grand Prix a couple of weekends ago. That didn't happen because of the weather. Um, mm. I, I can still see him slotting in this, and I think we've covered this as well, um, alongside Kimi Raikkonen, or do you think that's less likely now? Uh, that's where I would love to see Mick. Uh, I think Alpha would be a nice fit for him. Uh, I think, as I've said previously, Giovinazzi is n- not good enough for me. Um, you know, people might not like that. I just don't think he's good enough. That's just my, my opinion. Um, but the, the the situation with Mick seems to have changed a little bit recently because for some reason the, the the alpha kind of hierarchy have been suggesting that Giovinazzi, you know, there may be a ray of hope for him. They feel that his performance has started to improve. So it's starting to get a little confusing. I think it's um, for, for Mick, I'm sure Mick knows what he's going to do next season, but it's keeping the rest of us guessing because of this kind of almost you know, cross-pollination of drivers talking to different teams. He could end up at either Haas or Alfa Romeo. I think Alfa would be a better home for him because Kimi's there. Um, but, you know, again, now talk of him potentially uh, sitting alongside someone else at Haas. So I, I, I don't know, but we'll, we'll, I think it won't be too long. I think we'll find out what Mick's going to be doing fairly soon. Well, I think uh, one of them, I'm trying to think which one, said that they were going to be confirming by... Uh, the end of the month, weren't they? Yeah. I can't remember which one it was, but um, certainly one of those three teams was going to be, and certainly not Williams, so that must have been Haas or Alpha. Um, but yeah, I mean, the other team we wanted to talk about, we're bouncing around a little bit because we've already covered uh, Red Bull, is Alpha Tori. And of course, uh, the man in the frame there is uh, Yuki Sonoda, who's a Honda driver. I, I, I tend to think this may be a good idea for Red Bull, because if they want to, you know, their, their issue obviously coming into 2022 season is that they don't have an engine at the moment. They don't particularly want to go back to Renault. Um, this could be a nice little sweetener for a deal for some IP rights, potentially. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, I like that idea, John. It's, um, you know, if they put him in that seat, uh, and, and the kid's very talented. Let's let's not forget, it's not going to be getting it as, as a kind of a, you know, as a, as a freebie to make sure they can get this IP and, and, and the engine situation sorted. But it certainly would help the situation. Um, Yuki Tsunoda is, is arguably the, the best kind of Japanese talent to, to have a, a shot at F1 for, for many years. And um, I think if they can get him in there, uh, there surely, as you say, is a deal to be done where Red Bull could go their own way uh, and take that that, that Honda engine and, and develop it themselves with a partner. So, um, yeah, I think it's a very valid point. And um, hopefully he gets his test, which I believe is, is coming up soon. Um, he must have been pretty concerned, obviously, with the news that Honda are pulling out. But let's let's see what happens. Let's hope he gets in a seat for next year. And uh, if he can prove himself, you never know what happens from there. Yeah, and of course, that whole thing about Honda uh, giving the IP to Red Bull and, you know, could that work? Uh, something I'm going to put to Matt Summerfield uh, as well, because obviously he's... Um it got a fair amount of information and, and, and quite technical. So as to whether or not that would work, I'll, I'll um, bring that up with Matt. Um, okay, moving on. Uh, we have sort of haven't really spoken about Renault. Fernando Alonso's coming in. He's done some pretty good work uh, on the testing track. And I think Ocon was saying that um, it's already sort of helping out the team quite a, a quite a bit. Yeah, um, Fernando's going to bring a huge amount to the team, isn't he? I mean, he's... He's got that innate ability, I think, to get really under the skin of the team, to get the team on his side as well, which is is another <laughs> conversation altogether. You know, I think uh, Ocon could potentially really struggle with that next season unless he really ups his game. But um, yeah, Fernando obviously did a, a filming day. I think it was around 100 kilometres that he was able to do around 20, 22 laps, 21 laps or something um, and, and, and spoke you know, very, uh, very excitedly, I think, um, about the the opportunity moving forward, um, how the car felt, felt that the car was actually outperforming him, which is interesting. I'm pretty sure it won't take him too long to uh, to, to, to get the hang of it. Um, with the Ocon situation, um, you know, Renault have been pretty supportive, to be honest with you, I think. Um, he's been, yeah, I think he's suffering from a, what, what Cyril people described as a, and a lack of patience at the moment, a real impatience in him because he knows that he has more in him. He knows that he can perform better, but he's making small mistakes, small errors because he tends to be you know, uh, suffering from this lack of patience. So, um, yeah, it's going to be fun to watch how he develops if he can step it up between now and the end of this year and really prove that he's the man for the seat long term and then throw Fernando into the mix and watch the fireworks. <laughs> well, I was about to say, you know, you've got to get on top of your issues before Fernando arrives, surely, because it's not going yeah. to get any easier from that point, that's for sure. Um, no. Yeah. Well, okay, we haven't spoken about Ferrari, your favourite topic. Um, I'll give you... <laughs> uh, here we go. So, yeah, what's happening with Ferrari? <laughs> uh, I'm going to get a bad rep for this, aren't I? <laughs> um, you know what? Uh, they are... They, they're really suffering. We know that we've talked in depth about what's going on at the team and the, and the, the faults within the car setup and uh, and what they were expecting the car to perform like versus actually what they were seeing uh, on track when they, uh, they kind of looked at their simulations. Now, development tokens, obviously everyone has development tokens where they can actually effectively spend these tokens to develop certain areas of the car. They get two tokens, I believe it is. Um, most teams will kind of split those tokens over two areas of the car so they can kind of overall develop the car slightly better. However, Ferrari are kind of poker style all in with their tokens and they are going to entirely redevelop the rear end of the car. 
Um, some great articles online about this. If you get a chance to, to have a look and have a read, but uh, Simone Resta, the, uh, the head of chassis engineering, has been saying that that's where they see the, the real gains for the car if they can make some big changes to the rear end. And on top of that, they've got powertrain uh, work going on as well. They can work on the powertrain uh, right the way up until the first race of next season. So that test bench in Maranello at the moment is going to be very, very busy because the engine, obviously down on power from last year, coupled with an extremely draggy car, is obviously why they're suffering at the moment. They're going to try and dial those two together to try and bring a bit more performance out of the uh, car and fingers crossed they will and of course you know a healthy ferrari is a healthy f1 as well so it's, it'd be good to see it them, is you know, get it is back, you know it is the sport would be a sadder place without them that's for sure yeah um okay finally uh portimao really no data uh as i was saying earlier when we i, I did my my uh, track preview but i think it's it's shaping up as a pretty damn good weekend isn't it it is. I am super excited about this weekend. Um, I alluded to it last week, and I think maybe people getting a bit more visibility online on the socials, etc., of what this track's going to be like now. I actually shared something with you on Twitter earlier on with some sim laps that have been taking place. Uh, this circuit is unreal. It's fast. It's super fast. The cornering speeds are incredible. It's undulating. It's up and it's down. It's just going to be amazing to see modern f1 machinery tackle this circuit um you know it, it's wide that's one of the interesting things here as well it's a wide track there's a lot of space here so i think it's going to encourage some overtaking you know especially for the likes of the dive bombers like danny rick you know where there's opportunity where certain circuits are slightly narrow you might have that opportunity and you know unless you thread the eye of the needle you're not necessarily going to be able to make the move without causing an accident here it's going to be slightly different i think there's going to be loads of opportunity um Time-wise, you know, these cars are going to be massively, massively quick around here. So I, I just cannot wait. I really cannot wait. Yep, it's going to be a bit Magello-ish is uh, the comparison that I made. And I think it's uh, probably not on my Pat Malone uh, in making that comparison either. All right, mate, look, um, great to talk to you as always. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to another fantastic race weekend. It is round 12. Uh, Jimbo. Mate, thanks, and we will talk to you again next week and do a wrap of what happened this weekend in Portimao. Look forward to it, John. Thanks. So let's get on to this week's special guest, which is Matt Summerfield. Now, if you read Autosport and Motorsport, you'll have no doubt read the technical sections and have heard Matt's uh, opinions on things. He's the um, a technical advisor, if you like, works alongside, as I said at the top of the show, the legendary Giorgio Piola, um, and just provides fantastic analysis, particularly on that uh, on the aero side and, and just what goes on with Formula One cars. So I wanted to get Matt on and have been wanting to do it for a while. We've known each other for quite a while, in fact. Um, but uh, the first thing I wanted to, to talk about, Matt, was um, Mercedes and the DAS system, because we had such... Uh, cool weather at the Eiffel Grand Prix and it was mentioned that that was sort of a, a thing that that helped them out a bit but it's n- not really been the the silver bullet I think that that Mercedes thought it was going to be is that correct no well I don't think it was particularly a silver bullet perhaps that Mercedes were p- pretending it to be a lot of the other manufacturers and their rivals were effectively saying that they thought that it could be a silver bullet and the reason, obviously, as you say, that we saw it at the Eiffel Grand Prix was because of the cold temperatures and its ability to be able to warm the front tyres. So that is why we saw it there. It has been in use throughout the season. 
especially under safety car periods, the the, the drivers have used uh, DAS coming out of safety car periods to be able to warm the tyres up quicker than their rivals. Um, but yeah, as you say, it's not a silver bullet. Other teams have similarish systems, albeit not controlled in the same way as to what um, Mercedes do. They have uh, more uh, traditional systems, let's put it. Um, but yeah, it isn't a, a particularly silver bullet. It's it's something that's just added to the car to improve the way in which they can warm the front tyres and also has other offsets as well. But but that's the thing. Is it was really most useful then in those cold conditions behind a safety car rather than anywhere else. And I mean, obviously, when we get to places like Bahrain twice at the end of the year in Abu Dhabi where it's going to be quite warm, it's not going to be use, useful. But then again, we're heading to Imola uh, in the not-too-distant future, and it could be very handy there considering what time we're going there. Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing. And we're, we're obviously in a season where we wasn't expected to be uh, this sort of season. So we're going to tracks at a point in the calendar where we weren't expecting this either. So Mercedes obviously weren't building a car around the fact that uh, they needed a dash system to, to warm the tyres up at a particularly cold track. In alpine conditions. Yeah. But, you know, that that's that's what we've got. And, and it has helped them under uh, several uh, safety car restarts. I mean, we saw how Lewis bolted as soon mm. as the safety car come come out of uh, his way on Sunday. So yeah, that's it, it does work for them, but I don't think it's entirely you know what they they designed it for. Okay, and, and of course, um, Portimao. It's the next race. We don't have any F1 data on that. So tire wise, it's certainly going to be a very steep learning curve for everybody. But the layout looks pretty nice from an aero perspective. What do you make of that uh, that circuit? It's a, it is a new circuit, obviously, for the calendar. F1 teams have been there in the past and there was testing there, I believe, a, a little while ago. But it's certainly not within the, the recent timescale in, in Formula One history, let's put it. Um, it is going to be a, a big challenge for the teams because, as you say, they're not used to the circuit layout. And this calendar has thrown up some surprises for the teams in terms of the way that they're developing their cars because usually obviously they would have certain development targets throughout a year in order to to meet those for the specific tracks that they're heading towards and when you suddenly get a new track thrown into the calendar you have sort of a surprise element and I think that has obviously changed some of the results perhaps that we might have seen had this been the calendar from the start of the season. Um, but in terms of the the race itself at, at Portimao, I do expect it to be uh, quite a challenge for the teams in terms of learning the tyres, learning how to get the best from their car, but also might be quite a spectacle as well. I mean, it, there seems to be some decent overtaking opportunities here as well. I mean, the main straight down to Primera is um, is is a good opportunity there. But even then down to, I think, what's probably going to be the second DRS, it hasn't come out yet, but down to turn five, which is the left-hander at uh, Torre Vip. I hope I get that right. You know, there's still some decent overtaking opportunities. Yeah, I mean, obviously DRS will always help with that as well. And that will depend on how large a zone that the FIA decide to, to give. I mean, that's the other thing that we have to remember with a lot of these circuits that we're visiting that we haven't been to before. Even the FIA are having to learn because they're deploying DRS zones and DRS activation areas on a circuit that they haven't visited. So everybody's on a, on a bit of a learning curve. 
And it's a bit like when DRS first came in in 2011. The FIA actually moved the zones in those weekends, you know, the length mm. of them, in order to tune it so that the, the DRS wasn't too powerful. Um, but, you know, we're in a situation now where they're, they're probably working off of some simulation data uh, and perhaps obviously just, just working off of really uh, a bit of rule of thumb, learning what they have from DRS in the past. Um, and, and as um, we looked at, uh, sorry, as we saw at the Eiffel Grand Prix, just getting to a bit more team-specific stuff, McLaren brought some new upgrades which were on Carlos Sainz's car, but of course not much Friday running for them. That was cancelled due to um, the conditions and then they only had the hour to run them on Saturday. Um, is that going to be difficult? I mean, and I, I single out McLaren because that was the sort of the upgrades that got the most attention. With this new circuit, would that make it more difficult for them to get proper simulation and, and assess those parts because it's a new circuit? Uh, again, I think it's a case of, uh, of everybody's in the same boat. I, I, yes, McLaren had curtailed running, but they only had the parts on one car. They were going to try to back-to-back them so that they understood what was going on from car to car. And yes, they're going to a track that they don't have any data on, so it's a difficult one because they'll be wanting to understand their race program, their qualifying program, and then they're going to be throwing in this, the fact that they've got these new parts that they're trying to back-to-back. But on the same token, you know, they, they've got that anywhere that they went. If we go to a track that they actually understand, it's all about compromise and how much that they put into development work for what they're currently running, how they're looking at parts for 2021, because as we know, McLaren have already run some of the parts for 2021 to have a quick look at how they appear in the data compared to what they do on track um, versus, you know, what benefit they're going to get from running time in uh, the, the track itself to understand how that track is going to affect the car. And, and are they sort of more pushed for time because they don't have as many development tokens uh, because they're integrating that new Merck engine into it uh, from uh, for next year? They're you know obviously moving away from Renault into the Merck. Is that the reason they're trying to get as much done so early and, and ahead of everybody? Apart from the obvious advantages of getting all your uh, your your upgrades on the car as quickly as possible, to so you can take advantage of them before the season finishes. Well, I think the the biggest thing is is that they're trying a conceptual change. In other words, they're trying to change the way in which that the airflow moves around the entire structure of the car. So they're moving from a, a one type of nose design to a different type, uh, which is predominantly to do with the the width of the nose and the cape that's attached to the sides of it. And McLaren have moved to a more Mercedes design with their recent concept shift. So they are trying to understand, do they continue down that path for this year and 2021? Or do they continue with the focus that they had previously with the design that they felt perhaps still had some design scope in it, but was it as large as this new concept? And the reason that they're doing that, as you mentioned, is that the tokens are coming in for next season in terms of what uh, is locked down, what they can and cannot do between this season and next. And one of those is crash structures and the nose being one of them. So obviously they wanted to try and get that uh, design on the car before they couldn't make any changes going into 2021. And that's predominantly why we're seeing them really push now to see which concept works best and where they move forward for next year.
And when you look at what happened at the Eiffel Grand Prix, they didn't get as many points as they would have liked. Um, and of course, Racing Point did. They've jumped up to third in the Constructors' Championship, nipping at McLaren's heels back in fifth. Uh, Renault, because they got a podium with Daniel Ricciardo. So the pressure's really starting to ramp up on them. Yeah, and it's the thing where you're looking to try to balance development from one year to the next. You know, we've gone past the point in reality where teams are spending huge resources on this year. They'll have already switched most of their focus onto next year's car anyway. Mm -hmm. And so unlocking performance from this year's car is more now to do with understanding the car, which is what Renault have done. They've suddenly worked out something that they hadn't been able to deal with before, and that has then had a knock-on effect in terms of the way in which that their performance has escalated from there. And in terms of Racing Point, obviously, we know that they've got a very Mercedes-esque car in itself, and we know that the that that car actually won the championship last year, if you <laughs> if you want to look at it that way. Uh, but from one year to the next, you've probably got a, at least a second's worth of performance. So this year's car versus last year's car, you know, they, they don't really tally up. And on top of that, Racing Point have actually got a very different suspension setup to Mercedes. So they're still learning. They're not just literally copying and pasting everything from Mercedes. You know, they have got a lot of their own information and a lot to learn every time they visit a new circuit. Matt, um, thanks very much for that, mate. Uh, always great to talk. Really interesting to get your thoughts and, and insight into aero and, and car design, and we'll certainly do it again in the future. Thanks, John. Yeah, and of course, one thing we didn't um, discuss was the uh, the recent article that Matt did, uh, which was the discovery of a groove on the underside of the front wing end plate on the Red Bull and and also a couple of holes at the end of that um, that uh, front wing end plate, which indicated that they may have a blown front wing. Um, Matt uh, and the keen-eyed photographer, I can't remember who it was who actually took the photo, but uh, they took a look at that and did some analysis of it. And as I say, you can see that on motorsports.com. He works alongside the fantastic Giorgio Piola, whose illustrations you've no doubt seen. He's been in Formula One and, and um, a, an illustrator for many, many years. Uh, best in the biz, as is Matt. So if you want to take a look at more of Matt's work, of course, you go along to motorsport.com. Uh, and also you can follow Matt, which is uh, at SummersF1 on Twitter as well. And we'll no doubt uh, be talking again in the future to Matt Summerfield. That's it for the Pitbox podcast. Uh, give us a like, a star, a review, even a bit of feedback wherever you get your podcasts from or on Twitter or Insta at Adori Media or at Pitbox Podcast. If you're a McLaren fan, you may see me on another show with Chris Lawton this weekend. Really, really exciting stuff coming up. As I say, particularly if you're a McLaren fan, hope you'll join us. Um, we'd normally be in Austin this weekend. US Grand Prix, I really miss it. And particularly a, a little chili bar called the Texas Chili Parlor off 15th Street that we used to go to. Absolutely brilliant. Anyway, uh, hopefully next year. This weekend, Portugal. It's going to be a good one. Hope you enjoy it and catch up with you for another edition of the Pitbox Podcast next week. <laughs>